I was just really affected by what we just sang. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? From 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Those, that's the language of a victor mocking his defeated foe. So I just want to remind you before we begin jumping into God's word this morning. This is who we are in Christ. Now, regardless of the trial, a, a difficult trial you may be going through, or just the daily having to uh, daily routine of going through life, or even in light of the tragedy in Paris, this truth still remains. In Christ, death has no victory over us. Hell has no sting. I want to uh, pray before we. Our, we'll be looking at James chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. I want to pray before we hear the word of God. Dear God, we pray that you would remind us of this truth. That in Christ, death has no power over us. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And I pray that you would remind us of this as we go through difficult times, as we uh, face uncertainties in our world and tragedies. We pray that you would remind us that Christ is the hope of the world. That Christ, that His gospel, the good news of Jesus crucified for sinners and risen from the dead, is what our world needs. We pray now that as we read and hear your word proclaimed, you would use it to convict our hearts and to draw us to Christ. I pray that you would speak. And that your people would listen. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So suppose a man came into our assembly this morning with a big bushy beard and dressed in traditional Muslim garb. How would you respond in your heart? Now we know you probably would get over whatever the initial leanings in your heart were and greet the man and welcome him into our fellowship. But as we discussed last week, uh, regardless of what, who that person is for you, we all have this temptation in our hearts that when we see a certain type of person who's different from us, there's contempt or there is a thought of favoritism against that sort of person. We had some good conversations in our care group over the last week about who that is for you, and we realize it's, it's different probably, uh, perhaps for each person. Maybe for you, it's a, someone who's tatted up and has uh, a gauge in their ear and looks totally different than how you would represent yourself. Maybe for others, it would be someone who is dressed up in a, a nice, beautiful suit. Who is that person for you? Have you identified who that is? When you see that person, there is some sort of contempt in your heart for them. James, we saw last week from verses 1 through 7 in chapter 2, showed us how favoritism toward the rich is totally contradictory to the Christian faith itself. It's opposed to God. And so if we begin to show favoritism based on outward appearance, we are setting ourselves in opposition to God himself. And James continues on this in this theme in these next verses. So look in your Bibles at James chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. We'll back up and read from verse 5 so we have the full context. 
Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of this world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In this passage, James continues to show how favoritism, based on outward appearance, contradicts the Christian faith. And he does this by showing how it disobeys God's law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So favoritism, based on outward appearance, isn't simply a sin against another person. And it's not simply breaking a law. What makes the sin of favoritism and really every sin so heinous is that it is against the supreme person, God himself. Now, I think there are two things going on in this passage. First, James is dealing with this sin of favoritism based on outward appearance. And to do this, he broadens his scope. He broadens the focus to the law and how everyone has broken the law. So he focuses on the sin of favoritism, and then he focuses on the, the law in general and the lawgiver himself. So I dealt with the sin of favoritism quite a bit last week, and we saw how it is, it is absolutely contradictory uh, of the Christian faith for Christians to show favoritism based on outward appearance or societal prestige. So this week, while I'm, we're still coming back to that point, I also want to spend some time on this broader Uh, focus on the law that James has. And so here's our, our main idea. God has expressed his will by giving the law that we should show our devotion to him by faithfully keeping it. God has expressed his will by giving the law that we should show our devotion to him by faithfully keeping it. God gave the law and we should keep it. And when we do... It shows our devotion to Him. But if we don't, it shows our rebellion against Him. So my headings this morning will focus on three different people we'll be considering. We'll be considering the lawbreaker, the lawgiver, and the lawkeeper. The lawbreaker, the lawgiver, and the lawkeeper. Do you consider yourself a lawbreaker? Are you a lawbreaker? Most people I talk to whether they're professing Christians or not, or no matter what sort of religion they have, or if they have no religion at all, will say that they're pretty good people. Yes, I do bad, I do bad things sometimes, but that doesn't make me a bad person. Right? Have you heard things like that? Have you said things like that? Maybe you have. In the same way, I imagine we might be willing to, to say, 
Yes, I do break God's law sometimes, but that doesn't make me a lawbreaker. Does it? James gives us a contrast. If you do this, then you do well. If you abide by the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right? We all know that royal law. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. So here James shows us that showing favoritism is actually breaking this great command. Love your neighbor as yourself. It was Jesus who said this. The greatest command. Love God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Our responsibility to others is summarized by this command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we have not done so. As we saw last week, every one of us is tempted to show favoritism based on outward appearance. And even if we don't act on it, it's still there in our hearts. And we know that sin is more than just the things that you do. Sin has to do with the inner motives of your heart. The things that you, the things that you feel, the things that you think. It might not be against the poor. It might be against someone else. More, more than likely, it's someone who is different from you in some way. There's just a sinful tendency in each one of us to see someone who's different than us and just dis- despise them. It just wells up in our hearts. So I've asked you to consider who that is you feel contempt for. And don't just consider who it is you feel this way against. Consider the underlying motives in your heart. Why is it that we feel contempt for someone who is different from us? What is it that makes you do that? Some sort of selfish pride. Thinking that that you are better. A a self-superiority. Now I can imagine someone saying that Showing favoritism isn't that big of a deal. After all, there are much more worse there are much worse sins out there, right? There are murderers and rapists and terrorists. I mean, think about the terrible attacks in Paris over the last few days. Now we can clearly look at that and say, that is wicked. That is evil. Doesn't God have a bigger beef with them than he has with me? Committing a sin like favoritism? And perhaps these sorts of objections are what James has in mind as he writes verse 10. He says, Forever, Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. I think here's the main point in that verse James wants to make. One single sin is enough to make you guilty as a lawbreaker. Have you committed just one sin? then you are a lawbreaker. I don't know if it's true or not. Maybe this is just a joke that I heard, but I heard a story about a church who was having a time of thanks. You maybe have been in a church that gave opportunity for that. So people would stand up and say, I give thanks for this. I give thanks for that. And one lady stood up and she said she just wanted to give praise to God because she had not committed a sin in the last 10 years. That's funny, right? Because <laughs> we know something's going on there in her mind, because that's not true. Now, if someone actually thinks that, then it's clear their understanding of sin and God's understanding of sin are two completely different things. But this is what we all do to some extent. We, 
make a mountain out of other people's sins, and we make an anthill out of our own sins. So consider, aren't you quick to excuse yourself? Aren't you quick to excuse your own sins? If someone were to come to you this afternoon and point out a sin that they saw in your life, what would be your initial reaction to that? It would probably be, at least not even if you didn't deny outwardly, it would be to deny it inwardly. I haven't really done that. I'm not guilty of that sin. And if you do admit it, you probably minimize it by saying, well, it's not really that big of a sin. Yes, I admit that I do this and it is a sin, but no, it's not that bad, right? But here's the truth of Scripture. There is no such thing as a respectable sin. If we saw sin like God saw sin, we would see that from the least to the greatest, they are all despicable, disgusting, vile. That's why Jesus compared the Pharisees to whitewashed tombs. They were clean on the outside, appeared to be so, but they were filled with death, the stench of rotting flesh on the inside. Those who clean up the outside and coddle their so-called respectable sins are beautiful houses that have toxic mold growing, hidden from view inside the walls. So if you don't understand that you are a lawbreaker, it's because you don't see sin the same way God sees sin. So we must begin to hate sin. We must begin to see it as ugly, vile, disgusting And really, we can only do this by the Spirit of God indwelling us to show us our sins. If you are not a believer, if you have not been transformed by the Holy Spirit, if you haven't come to faith in Jesus Christ, it's going to be impossible for you to even begin to see how ugly and vile sin is. But then once we become Christians, we still have a difficult time seeing the ugliness of sin because we are still prone to being deceived. And so the Puritan Richard Baxter gives us some help in this, gives us some direction from this. There are a few copies of his article. He gives, I think, 20 20 directions for hating sin. The article is called Directions for Hating Sin. So here are just a few of them. First, labor to know God and to be affected with His attributes and always live as in His sight. Nothing in the world will tell us so plainly and powerfully of the evil of sin as the knowledge of the greatness, wisdom, goodness, holiness, authority, justice, and truth of God. The sense of His presence will revive our sense of sin's ugliness. Number two, consider well the office, the bloodshed, and the holy life of Christ. Love Christ and you will hate that which caused His death. Number three, look but to the state and torment of the damned and think well of the difference between angels and devils. And you may know what sin is. Angels are pure, devils are polluted. Sin dwells in hell and holiness in heaven. Let us be sure then that we are all lawbreakers. And what makes our sin so heinous to to God is not that it's against a rule book or a set of laws or a moral code, it's that our sin is against God Himself, the sovereign lawgiver of heaven and earth. 
So consider the lawgiver. Verse 11, For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So James is expanding on his argument. Whoever breaks just one law becomes a lawbreaker. And the reason is because every sin, every transgression of the law is against the one who spoke it into existence. The truth here is that God, the God of heaven and earth, has spoken. And we are called to obey. He spoke, do not commit adultery. And he's the same one who spoke, do not commit adultery. God is the one who spoke, love your neighbor as yourself. So it doesn't matter what the command is. It's, what matters is the command has come from God. God has spoken it and his creatures must obey. So, for example, if you lie, you are a lawbreaker because you have sinned against the one who spoke, you shall not lie. If you murder, you are a lawbreaker. If you gossip, you are a lawbreaker. And if you show favoritism based on outward appearance, you are a lawbreaker. Now, I've heard quite often people say something like, and maybe you've heard this or said this yourself, all sins are the same. Have you heard that before? Are all sins the same? Well, not quite. Some sins are worse than others in their degree. And some sins have greater consequences than others. So, for instance, it would be a sin for you after this message to come up and spit at me because you didn't like my sermon. But it would be a greater sin if you killed me. Right? If you murdered me. So if you have something against me, please spit at me and don't kill me. I would appreciate that. Some sins are worse than others and have greater consequences than others. But both sins make person, a person guilty as a lawbreaker. So all sins are not the same, but all sins are against the same God and lawgiver. The seriousness of a sin is measured by the value of the one sinned against. So if a child was outside killing a bunch of ants and torturing them, what would we do? We would hopefully tell them, don't do that. That's not nice. These are, these are creatures that God has made and you shouldn't do that. You, re, you should respect all life, even though it's that small. But what if that child grew up into a teenager and we found that he had been mistreating a little puppy and he had killed the puppy? We would take that matter much more seriously. We would get others involved and get him the help he needed uh, to get to the root of why he had done it. But what if as a man he murders another human being? Well, then it's beyond correction and counseling. He needs to go to prison. He needs to pay for taking the life of another human. The seriousness of the offense can be measured by the value of the one sinned against. Now, we can't carry that logic up to God directly because nobody can kill God. But I think the principle still remains. The seriousness of a sin is directly related to the value of the being sinned against. And so when one sins against the supremely valuable being God himself, the sovereign lawgiver, it is as serious as it can get. When you sin against the infinitely valuable being of God, you sin your sin is infinitely heinous. 
And you know, really, this is the answer to the question someone may ask about hell. Why is there a hell? It just seems so extreme, someone might say. You mean, I go, to, I go through life trying to be kind and good? Yes, I sin, I lie, I have lied, I have gossiped, I have hated someone else, I have become wrongfully angry with someone else. But should I go to hell for those things? Hell for all of eternity as punishment for what I view as little sins? Those who think this way, though, minimize both their sin and the glory and majesty of God. They look at their sins and they look at God through the lens, lenses of a backward binocular. You know what it does? It makes everything look so tiny. And that's what we do with our sin. And that's what we do with the glory and majesty of God when we think that our sins do not deserve hell. They don't see what's really there. They do not see the magnitude of their own sins. And they do not see the infinite glory of God. Because what's really demanded of us, of you, before God, is perfect law-keeping. Since God has spoken, we are required to perfectly obey. You, if you want to be in right relationship with God, this is what is required. You must be a law keeper. So God, the great lawgiver, has expressed his will in the law. And our obedience to the law expresses our dependence upon God and our devotion to God. Therefore, to be perfectly devoted to God would mean that we perfectly obey His law. What we need is absolute law-keeping perfection. If breaking simply one commandment makes you guilty, then it means in order to not be guilty, you would have to keep 100% of the law without fail from the day you were born until the day you die, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year for 85 years. If you're fortunate. This is what God requires if we are to be right with him and to enjoy his presence for all of eternity. There's a big problem with that. Because when we examine ourselves, we find that we are lawbreakers. We have failed. We have missed our chance at being law keepers. From the first step out of the gate, we disqualified ourselves from being Law keepers from being those who perfectly obeyed God's law. As soon as we were able to distinguish right from wrong, we chose that which is displeasing to God. So what do we do? We need absolute law keeping perfection to be in the presence of God. And yet we find that we have failed the test. No redos, no retests. We failed. It's over. We missed our chance. What we ultimately need is another. We need someone else. We need one who kept the law from start to finish and expressed absolute devotion to God from beginning to end. What we need is a law keeper whose obedience to God will count for us. And that's what we have in Jesus. For Jesus lived a life of absolute perfection. Think about it. Did he not love his neighbor as himself while he was on the earth perfectly? He gave of himself. He sacrificed himself. He loved even the unlovable. And wasn't that what he was doing when he died on the cross for sinners? 
Jesus was the perfect law keeper, but he died the death of a law breaker. He suffered and was tortured. And not only by humans, by the soldiers who mocked and beat him, he suffered under the wrath of God as though he were a lawbreaker, even though he had kept it all his life. Consider the love that Christ shows for his sinful neighbors. We who were without hope, destined for hell as lawbreakers that we are. The wonderful truth is that God gives us not only the law, but in Christ he gives mercy. Mercy which triumphs over judgment. Have you considered what mercy God has given you in Christ? We are lawbreakers, but by his sacrifice we have been received as though we had perfectly obeyed God the Father. Look at verses 12 and 13. Speak and act then as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James is saying here that we ought to live in light of the mercy we have received. We ought to live in light of the mercy we have received. So first we should consider our own sinfulness as lawbreakers and the just punishment we deserve And then second, we should consider the mercy God has given us in Christ. And third, we should consider the mercy we ought to show others in light of God's great mercy to us. So we've talked about some heavy subjects this morning. Many that we'd rather not talk about. Sin, hell, judgment. We'd rather do away with these things. But there will be a judgment. And we ought to live in light of that day. When Christ returns, every person will be judged according to what he has done. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36, that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. Every worthless word they have spoken, they will give an account. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. And yet we know that because of Christ, this judgment of believers is different than the judgment of the wicked. For Paul also says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've been rescued from that judgment By the work of Christ for sinners. So this law of liberty, remember, is that we have been set free by the work of Christ and the power of the Spirit have been enabled and empowered with transformed hearts to live for Him. To begin to obey His law. He has given us new hearts and new desires and we long to give Him glory through our lives. And it's these works done by the power of the Spirit which will be evidence of the genuineness of our faith. It will be ba- the basis of uh, the rewards we see, re- we receive at this judgment. The judgment that Christians will face is one that will vindicate us as having truly clung to faith, to Christ through faith, and give us great joy. So speak and so act in light of this mercy, in light of His grace. Jesus tells a story 
of a servant who had racked up an, an enormous debt to the king, about $6 million worth. And the king summoned him and demanded his money. Where is my money? There was no way the servant could pay it back. There was no way he could come close to paying back $6 billion. And so he pleaded, please, please, I'll do anything. The king had threatened to sell him and his family and all of his possessions. Please, I'll do anything. Be patient with me and I'll pay you back every last cent. And the king had mercy. More than that, he forgave the debt. Six billion dollars. You don't have to pay me back. You are free. Well, do you know the story? The same servant went out and found someone who owed him money. And he found one who owed him about $10,000. And he grabbed him by the throat and shook him and said, Pay back everything that you owe me. His fellow servant pleaded with him, Please have patience with me. Have mercy on me. And I'll pay you back. So at this point in the story, pause and think, what comes next? What does the servant do? And we might reasonably expect that he treats this man with the same mercy he was treated. We might think he forgives just as he was forgiven. But that's not what happens. The man refused to have patience. He had the man thrown into prison until he would pay the debt. And when the king found out, he summoned him back to his court and said you wicked servant I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also Jesus says my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart the point here is this Those who have received great mercy give great mercy. Mercy received results in mercy extended. Those who have been forgiven forgive others. That's just the way it works. That's the way God has worked it in our hearts. That as we have received the grace and forgiveness of God, so now we extend that grace freely and liberally to everyone else. And it results in this command, love your neighbor as yourself, being obeyed genuinely from the heart. The mercy that God has shown us in Christ triumphs over the judgment we deserve. And the mercy we give to others will be evidence on that last day that we truly do belong to Jesus Christ. So let us give mercy. Let us no longer show favoritism based on outward appearance or societal prestige. Let us show mercy. Let us love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we pray that you would take your word now and apply it to our hearts. That as we leave this place, you would would continue to convict us of sin. You would continue to cause us to see the greatness of your majesty and glory and that we would see the ugliness of our sin, that we would flee it, that we would flee to Christ. We pray that you would take the truths that you have been teaching us 
and apply them to our lives as we go to our neighborhoods, as we go to the marketplace, wherever we go, that as we see others, we would show them mercy. We would show them love. That you would give us new eyes to see. That we would see each person as valuable in your sight, as precious, as made in your image. And that we would love them by our deeds, that we would love them by our words, that we would love them pointing them to Christ, who is the hope of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.